I'm Sean Lukasik, and you're listening to the Paisanos Podcast. The central theme of this podcast is internet culture, so you may be wondering why you're about to hear today's conversation. The truth is, internet culture is all around us. It affects the way we communicate, the way we find relationships, the way we work, and for the purpose of my interview with Lieutenant Joe Torillo, the way we perceive and learn about history. Lieutenant Torillo was buried twice on the morning of September 11th, 2001. And in this conversation, he shares his incredible story and also discusses how the internet has perpetuated and spread conspiracy theories about what happened that day. As a retired FDNY lieutenant, Joe now travels the world as an inspirational speaker in front of audiences of all sizes. He serves as a mentor for men and women in the armed forces and works with schools, corporations, and organizations to deliver thought-provoking speeches and ideas. I'm grateful for the work that Joe has been doing throughout his entire career and thankful that he was able to join me for this episode of the podcast. You can learn more about his story and his work and inquire about speaking engagements by visiting joeterillo.com. Thanks so much for listening, and please be sure to share this with all of your friends and paisanos. Here's Lieutenant Joe Terillo. So, Lieutenant Joe Torillo, thanks so much for joining me on the Paisanos podcast. I appreciate you taking some time to talk today. Hey, Sean, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Yeah, so we actually met uh, going back about 15 years ago. You came to Elmira, New York to talk about your experience on September 11th, 2001. And I think it's important um, before we get into any other topics to uh, learn a little bit about um, for those who don't know what you experienced on that day um, and kind of the, the thoughts that you have as you think back um, almost 22 years ago at this point. Well, I have to kind of start off by giving you a little bit of a backstory, only because for the people that are going to be listening to this podcast, it might be important to them. So to get to know something more about me in in, in a deeper sense, mm-hmm. I, I went to an old boys Catholic high school in Brooklyn, New York, which was very typical back in the 60s and 70s. And after graduating high school, uh, I didn't really have a whole lot of aspiration of going to college. I didn't come from uh, a family of professionals. There were no lawyers and doctors. You know, they were blue collar civil service workers. And so I thought that, uh, you know, not having any aspirations to be some kind of professional, I'd have to get some kind of a civil service uh, job working for one of the city agencies but i decided to go to college and i want to study uh architecture and engineering because my real passion in life is the construction industry right uh, when i was a kid i wanted to be a carpenter i always wanted to work with my hands but I had nobody to teach me mm-hmm. and i actually taught myself the, the various building trades and i got very good at it so i went to college just to kind of learn more about the construction process and uh after graduating college i was taking all these civil service exams and i decided that if i was going to be a civil servant that i should probably choose one of the agencies that paid the most and and had a little prestige which at that time was either the new york city police department or the new york city fire department and Back in the seven, the late 70s, I was doing a little home improvement project for one of my neighbors, and his nephew was a 
plumber. He was doing the plumbing work. I was doing the carpentry. And he just happened to be moonlighting as a New York City firefighter doing the plumbing. His father owned the plumbing business. And uh, so we got to work together on this project. And he said, you know what, Joe? He says, you should really consider taking the test for the New York City Fire Department. It's coming out in December of 1977. I I took the police department exam. I took the fire department exam. I scored very well on both. And I actually got called by the New York City Police Department. I was going into the academy. And at the same time, I got a letter in the mail from the New York City Fire Department asking me if I wanted to uh, be appointed. So I had to call up the investigator at the police department, uh, the sergeant, I forget his name. And I told him I got the letter from the fire department. He says, hey, kid, he says, uh, if I was you, I would take the fire department. It's a better job. He's, he was a cop who talked me into taking the fire department job. <laughs> but it, so I went into the fire department, not for all the right and, and novel reasons that you might suspect, right? I went in there really to capitalize on their work schedule. I wasn't abusing my, my position with the fire department, but like I said, it was just a, a beautiful benefit of having those days off. I was going to say, and having that knowledge of carpentry and engineering, um, uh, I understand turned out to be pretty beneficial. Well, you know what? It's so ironic because I was taking a curriculum called construction technology. So it was half architecture and half structural engineering. And the whole goal that when we graduated from college, that we would end up working for a huge construction company as a superintendent on on a high rise project, either commercial or residential. And but I don't really think that that was my intention. I just wanted to learn more about architecture and engineering because it was a passion to me, right? So when I was in college, two of my professors, Louis Radioli, who passed away in about eight years ago, and George Borey, they were both working for a company called Dick Underhill, who was the biggest concrete contractor in the world. And they worked for Dick Underhill, and Dick Underhill had the contract for concrete placement on the Twin Towers. And they were part-time structural engineering professors. So with their position working for Dick Underhill, they were able to take me and the other engineering students on a class trip down to the Twin Towers when they were going up to kind of study them and, and, and check out this new lightweight novel steel support system. Hmm. And we would marvel at the fact at the time on these class trips that these buildings, which were going to be the biggest buildings in the world back in the 1970s, they seem to be so lightweight and flimsy and missing the requisite amount of steel that should be holding up, you know, as compared to older conventional construction like the Empire State Building. But the professor said, no, this is a new lightweight radical design and uh, everything's going to be okay. But I always remember that. And of all 357 firehouses in New York City, they could arbitrarily place me to begin my career. There was a brand new firehouse right across the street from the South Tower, and that's where they placed me. So now I'm back as a firefighter protecting these towers and no longer an engineering student studying them. And all that knowledge came back to me on the day of September 11th when those buildings were attacked twice within 17 minutes of each other. Now let's talk about that morning because um, as someone who was not necessarily responsible for running into a burning building, you know, you, you were, you were there um, as a civil engineering expert. um, And I know that you were doing some education at the time. How did you end up uh, running toward the fire that morning? Well, that's part of a very interesting and ironic story. Anybody who's 28 years of age or older today, 
all around the world would remember where they were when America was attacked four times in three different locations on the horrific day of September 11, 2001. And I just want to make something clear to the listening audience. I'm not really an expert in civil engineering. I'm, I'm more knowledgeable than most people. And I had enough of knowledge about those towers that I made an assessment immediately that the towers were doomed to collapse. Nobody would listen to me. Nobody would believe me. Uh, we weren't sitting around at a conference table discussing this as the incident was unfolding. Mm-hmm. But just prior to 9-11 on 2001, I was a newly promoted lieutenant. In 1996, I left that firehouse across the street from the World Trade Center. I was there for 15 years, beginning in 1981. And after 15 years on the fire department, with no pun intended, it was time for me to try and start climbing the ladder, <laughs> become a lieutenant, maybe a captain, possibly a chief, just for monetary reasons, because my wife was a stay-at-home mom, and I needed another, you know, uh, a, a little second side hustle besides my carpentry business. And so I got promoted to lieutenant in 1996, and I was working in a different area of New York City, because they don't let you stay in your original firehouse. They don't want you supervising your friends. The fire department trying sure. to turn you into a manager, which really never happens, because I don't care what firehouse you work in. It's a different circus with the same clowns (laughs) in any event you know they think this whole process works and you're becoming a quote-unquote a manager which is really never necessary um in the firefighting field we will we're all brothers you know we 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 share each other's uh, expertise whether it's a lieutenant captain a chief it don't matter Mm -hmm. but in any event by the getting promoted to lieutenant i got hurt very seriously in a fire one night trying to rescue a trapped woman and my left thumb was almost cut off in my hand when a huge skylight was smashed out of the roof by firefighters letting the smoke and the heat out and the, I was going up the stairs and the glass almost came the glass did come down as I was underneath it on the staircase going up to the second level mm. and the the glass from the skylight went right through my left hand and they rushed me to the hospital to stitch my left thumb back together and it was a near career ending injury and I was devastated because I was a new lieutenant I was already studying for the captain's test but they said I was going to be out of work for about a year as I was convalescing and I ended up working in headquarters at a desk job which I never worked in an office in my life I didn't even have to turn the computer on and I was hoping they wouldn't make me answer telephones because if you called headquarters and I answered you'd probably think it was Tony Soprano's house and you'd just hang (laughs) up the phone and say screw you Tony but in any event I ended up working in the Office of Fire Safety Education. I didn't know we had an Office of Fire Safety Education. And in essence, it was a group of firefighters like me convalescing from various injuries and illnesses. Because we couldn't be active in a firehouse, they would send us out Monday to Friday to one of the 3,000 schools in New York City and go into the classroom and talk to the students about both surviving and uh, preventing fires, right? And I knew nothing about this. And ironically, during my tenure, I when I get so good at it, they named me the director of the whole program, which was a life-changing event. And as the new director of the fire department's fire safety education program, I thought we should have a learning center where kids can go on a school trip. And May Giuliani loved the idea. I got a $3 million budget, and I designed the first state-of-the-art fire safety learning center in the world in the heart of uh, Manhattan, next to Radio City Music Hall in Rockefeller Center called The Fire Zone. And I worked two years on that project. We opened in October 2000, and we got nominated for a very prestigious award called the Tio Award. It's an Emmy equivalent for venues of themed entertainment. 
And so I was very proud of this project. And there's more to the story, which maybe we'll get into later. Mm-hmm. So after we opened up the Learning Center in October 2000, we won this prestigious theater award. Then in January 2001, all the pressure is off. I'm now spending my time promoting my Learning Center. When I got a phone call from a company called Fisher-Price Toys, I think around January 4th of 2001, nine months before the attack. And I pick up the phone in my office and headquarters, and it's Fisher-Price, and I said, you have the wrong number. This is fire department headquarters. And they said, no. <laughs> Fisher-Price had a whole line of little action figures called Rescue Heroes that kids loved. And they had a female firefighter called Wendy Waters, and now they wanted a New York City firefighter to be their new uh, rescue hero. They're going to call him Billy Blazers. And I helped them design this new action figure, and I was going to get a dollar for everyone sold around the world to support my public education program. So in January 2001, I set up a meeting in headquarters, and the Fisher-Price executives came with the artists illustrators and toy designers and for a whole day as i'm talking about what a firefighter looks like with his firefighting clothing his air tank his tools and equipment the artists and illustrators had our pads on easels with crayons and markers and they're sketching as i'm speaking at the end of the day fully sketched out they have this new action figure called billy blazers a new york city firefighter and they wanted to have a big press conference in new york city and they says where, where can we have a press conference well i was coming upon the first anniversary of the opening of my learning center I said, why don't we do the press conference at the fire zone? And they said, what's that? I said, it's a new children's learning center I co-designed. We opened last year. We won the Thea Award. They said, oh, my God, can we really do it there? I said, of course, I'm the director. <laughs> they said, okay, we know where, but when can we do it? Well, the meeting was in the end of July 2001. I said, let's do it in October. And they said, uh, okay, why? I said, October's fire prevention month. I think it's a natural tie to this project. They thought that was very apropos, but it was too close to Christmas and the holiday season. They wanted to get Billy Blaze on the mark a little bit sooner. Well, October was too distant. This was the end of July of 2001, and I was brainstorming. I said, you know, 911 is the emergency phone number in New York City. Why don't we, for the first time, have a 911-themed safety day? We can talk about how to prevent fires, how to survive fires, and introduce this new rescue hero, Billy Blazes. And the Fisher-Price executive says, oh, my God, that's such a great novel idea. So on 911, we're having a safety day on September 11, 2001 at 9 o'clock in the morning. Every TV station, every newspaper reporter was waiting for me in Rockefeller Center to introduce the new rescue hero, a New York City firefighter called Billy Blazes. And I got to my office early that morning. I wanted to catch up on voicemails and emails, scheduling, payroll. And it was about 20 minutes to 9, I realized, oh my God, I, I got 20 minutes to get into Manhattan from Brooklyn. I better get out of here now. I didn't realize how the time had passed that morning. I just got so uh, involved in in paperwork and office work. And as I was heading out of the office and headquarters, someone said, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. And there was an image on the TV, which I thought was a hoax. I thought it was a simulation. I thought it was a movie. And everybody was telling me, no, no, this really just happened. And of course, the first thing I'm thinking about are the firefighters in that firehouse across the street. And I was just thinking, you know, hey, what the heck is really going on? But I thought it was probably like a little plane. I didn't think much of it. I was just really nervous that I'd get caught in traffic with all the emergency vehicles responding into Manhattan, that I better get out of headquarters immediately and, mm-hmm. and beat the traffic and the, and the fire engines and police cars and ambulances. And I raced out of headquarters and my 
fire department vehicle and two blocks away was the Brooklyn Bridge going into Manhattan. And as I'm racing over the Brooklyn Bridge, I'm looking to the left. About an eighth of a mile away, I could see about 10 floors of fire on the North Tower. And I realized, you know, this is more than I thought. And by the time I got onto the Manhattan side of the Brooklyn Bridge, which was probably about 15 to 20 seconds from the Brooklyn to the Manhattan side, I had to make an impromptu decision. What do I do? Do I make a right and go to Rockefeller Center to the press conference? Or do I make a left and go to my firehouse where I began my career and spring into action? And, and, and that's a choice I made. I said, the heck with Billy Blazes. This ain't happening today. And I got to my old firehouse at about 9 o'clock in the morning. 14 minutes after the first jet struck at 846 uh, by American Airlines flight number 11 with 87 people on board. It struck the 93rd to the 99th floor. And I parked my car on the sidewalk in the back of the firehouse because I remembered from the bombing in 1993, don't block the streets with emergency vehicles so we can get ambulances to and from hospitals. And I ran around to the front of the firehouse. Both doors were open and both fire engines had already responded before I was there. And I wanted to get into the fire house with the doors open, but people were laying all over the floor of the firehouse. People got hit with jet fuel pieces of the building. People were scared and frightened. They were running, saw a firehouse with the doors open and just ran in there as a haven of safety. They trampled each other and they were laying on top of each other like pickup sticks. Some had, some had burnt clothes, some were screaming, some were crying, some were in shock, some were bleeding, but nobody was in critical condition. So I grabbed a set of firefighting clothing from another fireman who was off duty, Lieutenant Tommy McNamara. And I ran out of the firehouse and I had to run I had to run past the South Tower on Liberty Street to get to West Street where the North Tower was. And as I'm running past the South Tower, it's now nine oh three, which incidentally happens to be my lucky number in my life. But at nine oh three the second jet came right over my head. United Airlines flight one seventy five and I watched it slam into the South Tower between the seventy seventh and the eighty fifth floor. Now I realize A we're under a terrorist attack. The second thing I said was that everybody on the top of the towers are gonna die above the above the point of impact. It was so obvious to me that uh, they would never get down and we would never get to them. And then they would start hanging out the window, waving nautical clothing and imagining that I'm hearing them say to me, hurry up here and get us. We can't take this no more. Obviously, I didn't hear their voice, but I'm imagining that they're trying to get my attention on the ground below that, you know, that the situation up there was untenable. And at some point, they just started jumping out of the building anyway. They just couldn't take it anymore. They, they estimated two to three hundred people had jumped, come down like raindrops, and Hardesting was not getting hit by one of these jumpers, as we call them, right? And the third thing I said was, I said the towers are going to collapse, and people looked at me. Uh, they couldn't understand why I was saying that, but I was adamant. And of course, why did I say that? Well, because I had studied these buildings in college, and I knew that they would not withstand. I wasn't really concerned so much with the amount of fire. It was the amount of structural damage coupled with the fire that I knew those buildings would not stand. Mm-hmm. But nobody could understand me, and nobody could believe me, but... 55 minutes later, the North, the South Tower collapsed. I was right underneath it. I started running, but I didn't make it. Now, uh, you mentioned that when you saw images of the first plane hitting the North Tower, that you thought this could be a simulation. This is made up. What is, what is going on? It was hard for you to believe. And, um, you know, since then... 
uh, people have turned to places like YouTube and other dark corners of the internet to say just that, that it was in fact a simulation, that it was fake, that, that, you know, this is something that, um, maybe couldn't have possibly happened. Um, have you seen those narratives unfold and, uh, and what's your reaction been to the, to, to that narrative? Okay, well, back in 2006, uh, we had a, we have an organization in New York City called the September 11th Family Association. It's a group of people who lost their loved ones and came together to to form this organization because they had a lot of issues that needed to be resolved. One of the biggest issues was collecting insurance policies on those that were declared dead and missing, right? So that was the original goal. And then after that, they realized that they wanted people like you and other people who come to New York City as visitors, they want you to get to learn more about what happened that day in a very correct and respectful way. So they asked a bunch of us if we would join the organization and take people on a walking tour. This is long before the new World Trade Center was ever under reconstruction because people were coming down to the Lower Manhattan area after going to like a Broadway show or Central Park or going out to Chinatown for dinner. They'd come down to the Lower Manhattan area and stare through a chain link fence that surrounded the pit of the collapse of the towers, just wondering what was going on. And uh, they needed to feel connected somehow. So we would take them on a walking tour. And uh, people like me, uh, who were survivors, who were responders, and you can tell the story as I'm telling the story today. And uh, for them, it was very gratifying to hear the story correctly and respectfully through the words of somebody who lived through. It's almost like walking into a talking history book, right? And as I was taking these people on these walking tours, I would get confronted by these people called truthers. Uh, Those people would be hanging down, hanging around Low Manhattan area and, and approaching the people looking through the chain link fence and trying to convince them that this was what we would call uh, a false flag incident. And I don't know if you ever heard of that before. Have you ever heard of something called false flag? Well, uh, only under certain circumstances. So I'd love to hear how you would describe it. Okay, very simply, false flag. It's a concept where people believe, especially conspiracy theorists, they believe that a country attacks itself under disguise. And how did that come about? Well, back on December 7, 1941, uh, there were conspiracy theorists who believed that our government put Japanese flags on American planes and bombed Pearl Harbor to draw us into World War II. And that became known as false flag. So people still believe that that, that September 11th was a false flag. Uh, incident with our own government uh, attacked the Twin Towers and the Pentagon in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, so that we could be drawn into a war over in Iran and Afghanistan. And of course, nothing is further from the truth. Mm -hmm. So these people confront me, and some of them could be kind of arrogant and nasty and belligerent. And of course, uh, the worst part about the whole thing is that they know nothing about the construction of the World Trade Center. They don't have, they have very little facts. Matter of fact, they have no facts at all. Mm -hmm. It's all erroneous conspiracy theories and ideas. And so, yeah, I, I, I have to confront these people. And, you know, my one of the things I would love is to do a, a nationally televised uh, debate with anybody and everybody who believes that this was a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. And I will chew these people apart. And 
Sean, you got to believe that as one of the few survivors of the collapse of the Twin Towers, I got buried twice that day, declared for three days. If anybody has an incentive to hold the government responsible, it's certainly people just like me mm-hmm. or people who lost their loved ones. And I can tell you 100% this was no, con- that all these conspiracy theories are all hogwash. Uh, they, they, they don't hold any, any water whatsoever. I can poke holes in everything they have to say, mm-hmm. and I will confront all of their so so-called facts and turn them into myths mm-hmm. well let's go back because you left us uh when you were uh, or you left the story excuse me when you were running from the collapse of the south tower and and you said you didn't make it um and so so what happened when the south tower collapsed which you thought was going to happen you just didn't think it would happen that soon no, I didn't think the collapse would occur to probably sometime about three o'clock in the afternoon. Of course, this is a wild guesstimation, as you mm-hmm. can imagine. But I think what I was really worried about mostly that day was the EMTs and paramedics who were setting up their triage area, which is a treatment area in the lobby of both towers, which is the logical place to have your triage, right? Because as victims and and firefighters and police officers that were overwhelmed were coming down the stairs from up up above uh, the part of the towers that were hot and smoky and bringing down injured people. You could treat them right in the lobby before you actually scoop them up and put them in ambulances and got them to hospitals. But I realized that, you know what, at the end of the day, the most important people at the scene would be EMTs and paramedics. And one thing I want to make very perfectly clear, people think about September 11, 2001 in New York City at the Twin Towers, the two of the four attacks that this was the biggest firefighting incident in history. Actually, that's not true. This was not a firefighting incident. I don't even think we got a drop of water on either one of those fires mm-hmm. in either of the towers. This was basically an evacuation effort and, and, and medical treatment uh, event. So the real people who really did probably did the most were the EMTs and the paramedics, mm-hmm. uh, along with the firefighters and police officers. There was a joint effort and basically just rest people and not uh, not an extinguishing operation trying to put that fire out would have been almost impossible and i don't even believe that we even made an attempt to do that mm-hmm. but in any event getting back to what you had asked me so the people i was really worried about was getting the emts and paramedics out of the tower and getting them in their ambulances and driving about six blocks away out of the collapse zone of the towers. And of course, they didn't want to leave. They said, who the hell are you? You got no authority. Mm-hmm. We don't work for you. And I didn't have the authority. I, I guess I gave myself that authority. I wasn't a fire chief. or just a lieutenant. But in any event, they knew I was adamant. And I got the last crew away from the towers and a couple of minutes, a couple of probably less than a minute later, I was outside the South Tower right underneath it, outside the building. And I heard a rumble in the wall and I looked up and the tower's collapsing. And I said to myself, you idiot, you're the one who knew the building was going to collapse and you put yourself right underneath it. And I realized I probably had about 10 to 15 seconds left to live. And I think my biggest fear was that my body was never going to be identified. So I started running as fast as I can. There was a footbridge that went over the main thoroughfare by the hotel, which was in between the two towers, which was number three World Trade Center. And I thought if I could make it underneath the footbridge, maybe they would find a piece of my body or maybe I might even survive this. I started running towards that footbridge and as I'm running, the building's coming down, what we call a pancake type of collapse. One floor hitting the floor below. 
And as each floor is hitting the floor below, it's puffing air out like a fireplace bellows. And I can feel the air pressure on the back of my neck as each floor is hitting the floor below. And then the air pressure is getting stronger and stronger. The air pressure took my helmet off my head and my helmet was flying through the air. And then the air pressure lifted me off my feet. The estimated was like a tornado uh, gust, like 200 miles an hour. I don't know who came up with that, but that's what I've often heard people say. Because it shattered windows a couple blocks away in a lot of the residential high-rise buildings. So that air pressure had to be really super strong, almost like a bomb went off and lifted me off my feet. And then a piece of steel hit me in the back of the head and huge slabs of concrete just hit my body. And now I'm buried and I'm, um, um, I'm surrounded in this darkness by other people screaming at the top of their lungs. I got a fractured skull. My ribs are broken. My arm is broken. Um, my neck and spine is crushed. I'm bleeding internally and I'm suffocating. There's no more air. There's no more light under this huge dust cloud. And I can hear people screaming all around me in the darkness. And after a while, those screams turned into silence. I guess one by one, they all died. And then I was in the middle of all these fires. And I actually did something I hadn't done in a long time. I closed my eyes and I said a prayer. And I thank God for my career. I didn't want to die angry. I just didn't realize that one day this would be happening to me, although I took a vow so many years before I'm becoming a fireman that I'd be willing to give up my life in an effort to save life and property. And I said to myself, you never thought you'd live up to that vow, and today you are. And I closed my eyes, I said a prayer, and I, I was hoping I would suffocate before I burned to death. And about 25 minutes later, they found a void, and they found four of us and got us out. And they put me on a stretch, and they ran to the Hudson River where boats had come from New Jersey to get people out of New York City. You couldn't get out of New York City any other way. There were no buses, trains, cars. You either ran over the east side of Manhattan, over the Brooklyn and Manhattan Bridge, or you were able to hop on a boat on the Hudson River. And they put me on the deck of a boat to hold my head closed. Then I heard them say I was going to die if I couldn't get to a hospital. And there was another loud rumbling of war, and everybody on the boat started screaming, oh, my God, here comes the other building. Now the North Tower starts collapsing across the street towards the boat, and millions of shards of glass are raining down on the deck of the boat. Everybody jumped overboard and left me behind, strapped down to a long spine board. They thought I had a broken neck. They just didn't know. I was, just, I was all banged up. I was broken apart. Mm-hmm. And I broke free from the stretch, and I jumped into a doorway, but I ended up diving headfirst into the engine room. And now the North Tower buried the boat on the river and I'm suffocating all over again. Jeez. And, and the, there's so much trauma that goes with the experience that you've been sharing now for 20 years. I mean, you've been going around to, to schools and corporate events and groups all around the country to, to share your experience. And I know that there's a lot of trauma built into that. Um, and, you know, going back to these truthers and the people that are, um, using the internet in such a negative way. Um, do you ever feel like they're poking fun at this event or just doing it for their own exposure or, um, to try to maybe make some money on ads or, or whatever is, is their incentive for doing this kind of stuff? 
Well, you know what? These are the people that uh, focus a lot on all kinds of political issues uh, that are going on in this country. Everybody knows what's happening from just talking to friends and family and people that I meet. Everybody just feels very negative at this point. So there's a lot of negativity all around mm-hmm. uh, surrounding, the, surrounding the whole world at this point. I have to tell you the truth. I don't think the world has ever been in this position mm-hmm. in, in the life of the earth. And there were people who actually, I, sometimes I wonder if they have nothing better to do than to promote all these conspiracy theories. I don't know if they're doing it uh, because uh, they're ignorant, they're uninformed, uh, um, they take joy in, in doing this. I, I'll never figure these people out. And I don't have a problem with anybody casting their opinion. I mean, that's your right under the laws of this country. But uh, if you're going to come out and make statements, certainly you should have some valid proof, you know. There's a big difference between having an opinion and having proof. And and that's where I draw the line. And of course, you know, with social media, it's easier to get these conspiracy theories out there. And there are some people in this country, they just want to believe all this stuff, you know, like they a lot of conspiracy around COVID-19. And, you know, you're always going to get these people. And so that's the negative part about, I think, social media is that bad and bad and 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 false information actually travels almost at the speed of light at this point and and, and of course and it, it, it begins to affect the total morale of this country yeah and you know people sometimes want to hold these social media companies accountable because they're the ones that are putting the content out there, you know, if, if, for example, someone is into a conspiracy uh, theory about aliens, then they might be served a video um, that has to do with other conspiracy theories. And eventually they become someone who doesn't believe uh, in 9-11 or someone who believes COVID is a hoax. And um, and so there's some accountability, I think, to the social media companies themselves for even promoting this content that's out there. Um, and you talked about, you know, that you would love to get on a debate stage with some of these people. Do you think the debate maybe should take place with the social media companies themselves that are perpetuating this information? You know what? Uh, that's a good question, Sean. Uh, I think it should be done not just once, but over and over again on different social media platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want people to hear my voice, not because I get anything out of it. I just want the truth to be told. And I want people who are conspiracy theorists, maybe I can just turn them around 180 degrees. Maybe they never heard the story and the information from somebody like me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't blame anybody who necessarily buys into conspiracy theories because the way they uh, uh, promote it, some of the stuff can almost sound like it, it's authentic and it's correct. Mm-hmm. And But like everything and anything, you know, in, in life, you always got to give you a chance. You got to give yourself a chance to look at issues and look at people from different perspectives than the perspective than you normally would always look at people. And I think in life, we normally don't do that. Because of the way we grew up, the mindset, our culture, we look at things from a certain perspective, whereas Mm -hmm. I try to look at things from every perspective to see if I could see things a little bit differently. I think. And I imagine I imagine your experience has 
given you some perspective that most people just could never have. Um, and I know in just trying to set up this interview that you're someone who prefers phone calls. Um, you're, you're someone who would like to meet in person whenever possible. Um, and you've built relationships, real life relationships. We had a, lo- a short conversation um, before we started recording just about, you know, the term Paisanos and the Paisanos podcast and, and a Paisano being someone who is real and, and someone who is part of your community, someone that you sort of treat like family. Um, what are your thoughts and what's the perspective that you've gained about the relationships that you have in your life as someone who really doesn't use social media that much or someone who doesn't use um, the Internet as much as others? Well, you know what? I don't really use it so much in a, in a social sense. Mm-hmm. I use it more like in a, a business sense to help get my name out there as an inspirational speaker. Uh, you know, people think that I'm one of uh, like 100,000 people that do motivational speaking. I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm an inspirational speaker. Uh, I think that what I try to do is inspire people to motivate uh themselves in a way that could be very, very positive. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, let's face it. I mean, social media, I think, could be a very, very good thing. This electronic world that we're in, you know, it's never going away. It's going to get bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. And, uh, and of course, there are a lot of negative n- negativity that surrounds it, as we said, because you have people out there just spreading erroneous information, and that's going to happen. Uh, people just got to be smart enough to always listen you know, listen to the good, listen to the bad. Sometimes you, you you have a lot to learn from listening to people that talk about bad stuff because you realize, you know, how uh, untruthful some of that stuff is. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, I listen to the good, I listen to the bad, and I decipher it, I, I dissect it, and I try to uh, figure it out. And I think everybody has an ability to do that. But on the upside of the electronic world, I think there's a huge benefit to it. Uh, Something that I feel really passionate about, you know, uh, at this point in my life, uh, I'm always a person full of compassion and empathy. And I try to get other people to become more compassionate towards others and have more empathy towards people and sympathy besides empathy, right? To try and help people when they need the help most because, you know, when you're in trouble, I'm in trouble or something's not going right. Mm -hmm. want to feel like we're we're alone. Yeah, and I think having conversations like these and being able to share this on on YouTube or on Spotify on, on different mediums where people are going to get information and to get content, um, there are ways to add to what's out there on the internet um, and add to the conversation with with good, truthful, um, and and holistic information. I'm not a big reader. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I'm educated. I just not the type of guy that likes to read books for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. I would rather watch a documentary. I want you to deliver the information to me. I don't want to go and look for it and extract it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I don't know and, if it makes sense to you, but oh, it just, totally makes sense. And I, and I do, there are more and more examples of that. Um, and, uh, and I love those opportunities that we have thanks to the internet and thanks to, you know, some of the companies that, um, do take some responsibility in delivering that information. I want to just, uh, kind of finish by going back to your experience and asking, 
about how that has shaped you as a person over the past 22 years? Obviously, it has um, it's changed your career. You know, you've become an inspirational speaker. You've had the opportunity to share your story with so many people. Um, but but how has that experience in 2001 shaped who you are as a person today? Well, you know, I, I think that, you know, every single day of my life and, of course, uh, mostly during the times when I'm doing speaking, I always have to relive that day and tell the stories. I'm always reflecting on the chronological uh, timeline of, of, of that event. I, I realize how important it is for me to be able to share the story and get the story out there very correctly and very respectfully to people. But on the other side of the corner, you know, there was a the negative part of this as well. Uh, you know, uh, the, I was forced into a disability uh, retirement uh, this February coming. 2024 will be 20 years, almost as long as I served. And I'm angry about that uh, for a lot of different reasons. You know, there was a financial implication of it. There's my health concern. Uh, uh, a lot of things are going wrong with me right now. I got lung issues and I was just diagnosed uh, last week with Parkinson's. And, uh, you know, when I heard that, I almost, you know, I lost my breath. I'm like, this just can't be. Like, how, how, how could this be happening to me? And it all has to do with the brain injury. There's a direct correlation between a traumatic brain injury and Parkinson's. And so there's a strong connection. And so I'm still suffering all these years later with the, with the after effects, like a, 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 like a lot of people, you know. I mean, I have to say that I was one of the fortunate ones that actually survived it by the great of God for reasons I don't know and people ask me that question all the time why do you think you survived and you know what all through my life I always had this weird premonition that God had a bigger mission for me and, and I know that's weird I, it's a topic of another discussion my inspiration and, and my quest is to make this country the reunited states of America to travel the country and bring people together and to kind of solve all these little ridiculous differences that always keep us at each other's throats and what about you, you personally? Has there been any change to the way that you live or experience your life day to day? I mean, you did you talked about um, a lot of physical elements as a result of, of being in that situation and, and experiencing um, uh, everything from a loss of lung capacity to asthma to now Parkinson's. And I'm very sorry to, to hear about that recent diagnosis. Um, has it given you any long-term outlook on the way that you live your life sort of day to day? You know what, Sean? I don't think I live my life any differently besides my medical condition. But I don't live my life any differently than I did before, mm -hmm. as I did the day before September 11th. I was always somebody who was a very compassionate person, somebody who was sympathetic, had a lot of empathy for people. Uh, I think in this climate now, I try to do that even more. I want to be able to spread my messages and get people to know the real Joe Torello and to talk about things that that trouble them. And maybe I can get more people to be more empathetic towards other people. 
there comes a time in life where, you know, words are words and actions are actions. And that's what I try to do. Well, yeah. And I think um, I know people all around the world consider you a hero for what you did on September 11th, 2001. And to know what you consider as being a hero is is continuing to live the life that you are living before that day and to continue living the life that you think um, is important and and doing right by other people. Um, and I think what a great lesson to hear from you about what it means to actually be a hero day in and day out. So yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. It is important, you know. Uh, the thing is that I'm not knocking anybody. I'm not trying to put myself above anybody. I would never do that. But I really believe that there's enough of wealth in this country mm-hmm. that nobody should be suffering. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, that's always a contentious point because the the people that have want to have it, the people that can that they can't have it or don't have it. They're always looking for better ways. And I just really believe that uh, we need to be a much more of a generous society mm-hmm. uh, because there is enough of money. There's enough of wealth in this country that nobody really should be suffering. No, I totally agree. And, and it's, it's, um, you know, who better to, to hear that from than, than someone like you who, um, you know, the story that you told, the the part that stands out to me is that you had a choice to to drive, uh, to turn left over the bridge or to turn right and go up to the press conference. And that choice that you made in a span of 15 or 20 seconds has shaped everything that you've experienced um, for the rest of your life. And, and it's um, definitely had an impact on me and in this conversation um, and and hearing all the perspectives that, that you have and that you've shared um, as a result of that one decision to turn left uh, at the end of the bridge there um, is uh, we have a lot to learn from that. So I appreciate you you sharing that with us. And you're welcome. And I, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. And I, I just hope to- that my words really echo with people that are going to listen to this. Oh, I think there's no doubt that they will. Um, and I and I have to add, I don't normally have a mustache. I've been growing it out for uh, for a party at the end of this summer. And um, but I feel like you know, you talked about Billy Blazes and making sure that he has a mustache. My uncle, who's a lifelong firefighter, has a good thick mustache like you do. So uh, I hope that you're proud of what I've got going on here. I do. You know what? Like three years ago, uh, I was having a cup of coffee back in 2019 and uh, sitting in my kitchen at home here in New Jersey and the phone rings and it's a Fisher Price Corporation. And uh, he said, hey, is this Joe Trillo? Yes, it is. Hey, this is Mike Sullivan from the Fisher Price Corporation. Hey, Mike, how's everything? Joe, we've been thinking a lot about you. And they said, we're resurrecting the Vescue Hero line, and our new Vescue Hero is going to be you, Joe Torello. <laughs> so Fisher-Price made the new Vescue Hero, Joe Torello. And I'm not bragging, but it's ironic to think that I'm the only person in the world who has a Rescue Hero made in his likeness. And I didn't want them to do it uh, because 343 firefighters gave their lives that day along with 60 police officers. And I felt that uh, I didn't want to steal the honor from those who were carried to their grave, but they insisted on doing it. And and so I said to Mike, I said, listen, if you're going to make an action figure about Joe Torello, maybe it should be uh, Al Capone or Tony Soprano. I mean, it can't be another <laughs> Billy Blazes, but they did. So, Well, I hope fact, that new action figure had a good thick mustache as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> well, Lieutenant Joe Torello, thanks so much for your time today on the Paisanos podcast. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. Paisano's podcast is produced by Creagent Marketing. It's written and hosted by me, Sean Lukasik. You can find our show notes at paisanospodcast.com or visit our YouTube page to watch the video version. If you have guest or topic ideas, email me at sean at paisanospodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>